Are you the kind of person who likes to know how things work? Some people are not all that interested. They don't care how something works. They just want it to work, right? They're not interested in the mechanics, or the process, or the details. They just want the thing to work. There are some, on the other hand, who are very intrigued with the how. How? As a matter of fact, when they walk into a room, they stretch out their finger to flip a switch. And something goes on inside their mind and their, the process. And they, they actually have some cognitive understanding of the, the current that is moving up the wall from the switch all the way across the ceiling to the light fixture. And when the current hits the light fixture, it illuminates a fil filament in the bulb, giving light to all in the room. I mean, they actually think about all that stuff. They like to know how stuff works. They get some sort of peace, encouragement, confidence by understanding why things work when they work. Now, I have just described to you two kinds of people. We are going to self-identify for just a moment so that we can get organized before this text. If you're the kind of person that really doesn't care how things work, you just want them to work. If that's you, raise your hand. Let me see your hand. Okay? Wow, a lot of people like that. Okay? All right. From this point on in the sermon, we're going to refer to you as the I don't care people, okay? <laughs> I don't care. And to make sure you get that, we have some pictures to assist you in defining how you feel. How about this one? What if I told you, I don't care? <laughs> oh, oh, really? Oh, oh, wait, I don't care. <laughs> Stop talking. I don't care. Breaking news. I don't care. Hi. I don't care. Thanks. I don't care. And SpongeBob, I don't care. Oh, seriously, I don't care either. Oh, I understand. I just don't care. Right now, if you raised your hand, I want you to turn to somebody next to you and tell them, I don't care. There you go. Now that we've got you labeled, we want to talk to the rest of you for just a moment. If you're the kind that does want to know how things work, I'd like to see your hands. You like to know how things work. Yeah, okay, all right. Well, I do need, to, need you to know this morning that this is a sermon for those of you who are in category B. <laughs> They're the ones who want to know how things work. For the rest of you who don't care how something works, this is going to be a pretty boring sermon. <laughs> in this section of the Colossian letter, we get some mechanics there are nuts and bolts and gears and motors, pistons, pumps, clamps, and tools. It feels like a very odd section of Scripture. Because we're attempting to join mechanical things with spiritual things, and they, they don't really go together. Mechanical things are physical. They have size and shape and weight and function. You press this lever, it turns the wheel, spins the gear, moves the shaft, raises the door, unloads the hopper that empties the bend. It's all very physical. Spiritual things, on the other hand, are somewhat vaporous. Oh, they're real for sure, yet perceptible mainly only by the realms of reason and emotion and intellect. Spiritual things weave among things like, like, like guilt and contrition and, and healing and redemption, love, forgiveness, mercy and compassion. All very powerful things, but you cannot put a handle or a knob on any one of them. This section of scripture, we're going to be attempting to join the mechanical and the spiritual in a way that is very important to revealing the mystery. Let's review. 
We're spending nine weeks trying to study the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians in the small city of Colossae. We've done some background. We've talked about the, uh, through some key players and the locations, the geography, the issues. We've noticed that Paul keeps repeating an idea. Mystery. A mystery of God, mystery, mystery of Christ, a mystery of life, what it is to know God through Christ, and maybe the grandest mystery of it all, what it is for Christ to be in you. Chapter 1, verse 27. It's become evident through our study that there is one supreme centerpiece around which and through whom all the rest of the universe makes sense. You have access to absolutely no wisdom at all until you learn Christ. We've been using this equation to describe it. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Paul's attempt in this letter is to refocus some good people who seem to be losing their focus. Epaphras is the leader of this group in Colossae. He's, he's the one who asked Paul to help him. He seems to be in a bit of a panic. Panicked enough to make a 2,500 mile round trip to get some help. He went to Rome and back. And the heresy or the false teaching, teaching that's keeping Epaphras up at night, the issue that has him running in Rome to panic, is something we might call syncretism, a common idea in the philosophies of Gnosticism in the early first and second century, but don't get put off by that fat word. Syncretism simply means to blend. That's all it means, to blend. It is an attempt to achieve a superior realm of position and knowledge through this tactic. Let's gather together a collection of the ideas from many and any realm of philosophy, thought, religious, practice, culture, so the general ethic being promoted. Every idea has credibility. Every philosophy should be given its due. Every promotion should be accepted, allowed, and appreciated. Every thought is right from its own perspective, that syncretism. It is to blend in a manner that allows all things, all ideas, all notions, all beliefs to be rendered not only as valuable, but as right. At first, that sounds very modern. Highly contemporary. It sounds familiar. Can't we all just get along? And the way to get along is simply blend every thought, imagine an idea, imagination and idea into a unified pool of approval. Doesn't that sound noble? <laughs> but here's what we're learning in this letter. There is only one starting point that offers sense to life. Wisdom and knowledge can only be born if it is found in the person of Christ. He is the universal centerpiece. If you believe that getting ahead in life is about widening your perspective, my goodness, you could not be more wrong. This is what Paul's talking about. Don't attempt to blend every raunchy thing under life with the false idea that it's somehow going to produce a roses. Blend is not the answer. Blend is actually the crisis. Focus on the truth. Wisdom is not widening your mind to everything. Wisdom is finding the right thing in the midst of the many. Paul's drawing Christian people back to the centerpiece. Christ in everything you do. And with that background, let's step into the text for today. Chapter 2, verse 6. Bible open or we'll show it to you on the screen. You begin to see some of the mechanics. They become visible. Verse 6, so then... Just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, 
Continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, in him. You find that phrase repeated often in this. Strengthened in the faith that you, as you were taught, and overflowing in thankfulness. This relationship with Christ is an extremely deep thing. Christians sometimes forget that, grow apathetic. We grow in a malaise about what our faith is all about. It's described here as being rooted in him. We're not talking about the flower of the plant that blooms one day. We're not talking about the leaves that grow at the end of a branch. We're, we're talking about the root conversation. This is a deep place. And these days, you better be rooted because, quite frankly, you are living in a space where, as Paul suggests to Timothy, in an environment where we are overloaded with people who are tossed by the winds of very foolish thinking, Paul said it this way to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4. He said, the time is coming. When people will not put up with sound doctrine? Why, instead to suit their own desires, they're going to gather around themselves a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And they'll turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside, some version put it, they'll wander off into myths. But you, Timothy, you, Timothy, you keep your head, man. Keep your head in all situations. Similar guidance is repeated here to the Colossian Christians. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies. Things that depend on human tradition. Old people get bogged down in traditions all the time. Human traditions, religious traditions that they think have value and yet they have no concept at all where they surface, where they organize, what they really mean. Human traditions. We've done it like this in our family all the time. I have no idea what it means. Not sure where it came from. Human traditions. But it's not just human traditions. He also talks about the elemental spiritual forces. People want to be able to do something spiritual. We have this desire to be spiritually involved. And we get intertwined in odd things like Aunt Martha died seven years ago, but she is my guardian angel. She's taking care of me today. Or it's mysticism or mediums or all kinds of spiritual adventures. He says they're spiritual forces of the world that we chase rather than on Christ. We seem to be captivated by silly things that have little value. If there's something that should captivate you, if there is something that should take you, <gasps> take your breath away, it is Christ. Verse 9, for in Christ, all the fullness of deity, capital D, God himself, deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He's the head over every power and authority. You notice in that verse, this word fullness is actually used twice and is pointing in two directions. One of them is pointing to God himself as he poured himself fully and completely into Jesus Christ. And when Jesus said, I and the Father are one, he absolutely meant it. But it's pointing in another direction as well. It's where it begins to make a difference for people like you and me, that in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. In God, in other words, God fully pouring himself into Christ was done as a supernatural work with you in mind so that the very fullness that Christ knows could be invested in you. Fullness. The Greek word that's translated fullness there is a, is a word, pleremo. It means complete. It, it, it it's really relating to contents. If you're baking or cooking something, you, you know that you never serve a dish until all of the ingredients are included. You'd never serve something half prepared. No way. Fullness. 
Filling a glass to its capacity and overflowing fullness. It's the word Paul uses in Romans chapter 11, verse 25, when he talks about the plan of God and the full number of the Gentiles to be called in. It's the word he uses in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. He's talking about time now. He says, when the fullness of time, with all the perfect things organized and arranged, God engaged his behavior. Here's the weird thing. These Christians in Colossae were so concerned, so interested in having a full life. I guess it's like you and me. We want to have a full life. But they were leaning into lies. Lies that said, having a full life comes by chasing everything out there. You have to chase it all. Paul says, no, 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 you're on a trail to emptiness, not to fullness. To chase everything is to find nothing. The only way to be truly full is in Christ. Focus. Literally, you have been made full in him. There's nothing missing. Christ fills you up. It's an identity issue. I'm going to go all psychology on you for just a minute. For all of us in the room who are fragile identity types, we invest so much energy in searching for somebody else's approval. There aren't any other things to add to what Christ gives you. Your identity is fully and wholly in Christ Jesus. So why in the world are you spending so much time and energy hoping to obtain somebody else's approval? The approval of men. No, fullness, completeness comes from Christ. And here now in the text, you begin to watch the mechanics of that fullness put on display. First, it's a complete and full salvation in, in uh, chapter, uh, uh, verse 11, rather. Paul says, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. That might sound like a confusing set of phrases, but see, in the Old Testament, it actually was surgery. At least that's what most were thinking. If you had the surgery, you were part of the people of God. Turns out that it's not an operation performed by human hands. It, Christ has done something of much deeper consequence. Whatever that is, that, the self-rule was cut away by some sort of Christ surgery. We're not talking about medical procedure here. We are talking about the putting off of the body of sin and the flesh by the circumcision which only Christ can complete. We're talking about a spiritual operation, not a physical one. Cutting away the sinful thing. He goes farther in verse 12. He said, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Paul wants to clarify this Old Testament thing called circumcision. He also wants to clarify and identify this New Testament thing called baptism, how they apply. Baptism, it's a picture of union with a believer in Christ. It's a beautiful picture of it. It, it really simply means baptism to, to place into. That's what it means, to place into. And when you become a Christian, it is as if you were buried. You died. You rose again to new life through faith. It's an operation of God who raised him from the dead. Just as God raised him, he raises you. Just as God finds your death appealing, he found Jesus' death appealing for a major purpose. All done, completed in Christ. There's a second feature that's here. It's not only complete salvation, it's complete forgiveness. Verses 13 and 14. 
I'd have to tell you that if I uh, talk about the most exciting facet of Scripture, it's here. The forgiveness teaching of God's Word. Verse 13 and 14 went, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us a few of our sins. He forgave us some of our sins. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the charge and, and the legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to a cross. Do you know how many how-to realities there are in those few phrases? He had to cancel a charge, a legal indebtedness that was very condemning. He had to take it away from one place and put it onto another place. It included a very physical action of nailing it to a cross so that that sin was pinned to a tree until the need could be fully satisfied of the crime. Pay attention to the mechanics. There's a lot going on here. On two occasions in my life, I have visited a place called Gethsemane. It rests at the lower edge of the hill of Olivet, overlooking Jerusalem. There, there are olive trees in that garden that are more than 2,000 years old, which is kind of curious, because that means those trees would have been there to hear the prayers of Jesus on a night before the cross. The trees, they would have heard the anguish that he encountered as he was grinding his face into the soil. The trees. The Gospel writer Luke describes a graphic picture of those events when he wrote in Luke chapter 22. He said, and, and being in anguish, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became drops of blood falling to the ground. I wonder about that, that strain, those moments in Gethsemane. What's causing the pressure for Jesus? I mean, is it death? Is that it? He's standing on the edge of the valley of the shadow, knowing that you've got to go through the valley before you can come out the other side. Is it, is it the torture? Is that what he's feeling, burdening him? That's what's straining him. Is that it? Well, I, I would assume that must be part of it. He is very human. But you need to understand that this, this particular cup is very deep. Something far deeper than just life and death is pressing him. Move your eyes off the surface of the ground in the dark darkness of a midnight garden. Move it away from there for just a moment to a realm of the celestial, places where principalities and powers meander like demons and where holy angels set limits to the demonic prowl. Look to another dimension. While Jesus is in Gethsemane, there, there's a gathering going on. A harvest, if you will, a collection of the dark and the horrid. From every wheezing corner it comes. From every stretch of eternity and time it is drawn. From everywhere it's gathered, from humankind and from every spiritual being it's assembling. From the edges of the galaxy and the distant star and the farthest place, sin is assembling. Sin, I mean. It's assembling. It's coming together at one place and one time. Every atrocity against the holiness of God. Every pathetic aspect of our culture 2,000 years later, every sin from the beginning of time up to Jesus, all of it, it's gathering in one place, one garden, one man, one innocent man. Like filthy water spiraling and swirling through a funnel, the sin of every man and every time was being brought to one place. No wonder he had no strength to stand up aright in the middle of the night, for this weight, this burden, pins him to the earth. 
If you want to understand that night in Gethsemane, you need to realize that you participated in that night. You were there. You may not know it, but, but you were there. You are already involved in this, whether you want to be or not, because in the harvest of evil, there's a crop of sin that is yours. You planted it, you harvested it, you've lived in it. It's yours. In order to understand how this man comes to an ultimate place of anguish, you need to carry a little bit of the load. So I've designed an exercise for us this morning. An exercise. So that we can understand the weight and the, and the burden of sin. We can't get all the sin of the world and all the parts of the dramatic elements of the universe, but we can gather the sin of the people in this room. So let's do that, shall we? Uh, one by one, we're just going to have you come up to the front, and you just unburden all the sins that have been yours through the process of your... You just lay them right up here, okay? One by one, we'll come, and you one on the next, and on the next, and on the next. If you're having trouble thinking about them, let me refresh your memory. We're going to bring up the bitterness, the slander, the anger, the greed, the lying, the hatred, the prejudice, the drunkenness, dependency, abusive words, the vain use of the name of God. Are you beginning to feel the weight at this point? Oh, there's more. There's gossip and cheating and theft and shoplifting and extortion, income tax manipulation, crowsing, physical abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse, infidelity, harlotry, adultery, lustful mind. Are they getting heavy yet? It's fornication and depravity and idolatry and abortion, failed relationships, uh, insolence, disobedience, disdain for the poor, wasteful use of money and resources. Every time you let a needy person walk by and go unnoticed. Every time you cheated the circumstances to get your way. Every time you saw the innocent abused and didn't say a thing about it. Every hard relationship between a father and a son. Every time the crowd was going the wrong way and you willingly followed. Are you getting the weight of it all? Oh, just the ones in this room. We'll just bring them up here. And then, and then the next part of the exercise, once they're here, once they're here, then one by one we come back to this place and we lift the burden of it all. We carry it ourselves. I want you to bring it up here, not to show it off, but to understand the weight of it. About the time we begin that very process and that exercise, there's some people who object. They say, I don't... I don't carry the weight of all of that. I'm not responsible for all of the weight. I may be guilty of some of that. I'm not responsible at all. Those are not my sins. Well, I'll tell you what, they weren't his sins either. He bore the sin, none of which was his own. And yet no man has ever felt the heaviness of sin as he felt. So disgusting will it be that even the father will have to turn his head from the sight. That's right. That proud father who is so proud of his son would have to look away when the harvest of sin had come. Do you understand the mechanics? Your forgiveness is full and complete because he took the mess you made, accepted it and as his own. There were legal responsibilities. The accuser had to be appeased. Sin actually had to be carried by an innocent one, taken to a place called Calvary, and there pinned to a tree long enough to satisfy the sentence of the crime. It's very detailed. It sounds like such a disgusting event. It is. And not everybody could pull it off. Only Jesus. Having achieved this, we arrive at the third fullness factor here. There is, there is complete victory from these events. Verse 15, 
Having disarmed the powers and authority, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The Apostle Peter may help us a little bit with this idea of what it means. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, he talks about Christ descending to make a proclamation to the spirits who are in prison. What are the spirits? He's talking about bound demons. He proclaimed the triumph, and they were disabled, and they were dethroned. Complete victory, final, fixed, and sure. Salvation, absolutely complete. Forgiveness in its fullest form. Victory, absolutely yours. Now, I don't know if all that's registering or not, or if you're absorbing the how-to of that, but maybe let, let me bring another idea alongside in parallel, perhaps, to help contribute. We've been talking about salvation. Salvation is the concept we've been trying to comprehend. But let me bring another one on it. It's the idea of freedom. Freedom. A very important part of our lives. Freedom, something we appreciate and are grateful for here. Well, one day, you walk into a coffee shop and you take your place at a table. Just a few feet away, there are two guys talking and sipping java. Both of them are in soldier suits. I suppose they work at a local base. During their conversation, you're overhearing some things, and you're listening to what's going on. And it's clear that they enjoy each one another. They have some friendship there. But about in the middle of the conversation, both those men take a look under the table, and this is what they see. You can't help but stare and wonder, because somewhere back there is a big storm. A big story. They talk a little longer. They finish their coffee. They, they pay their bill, and they walk out of the cafe. I'm sitting there at the table, and suddenly it dawns on me. And I'm one of those guys who lives in a place and really enjoys the wonder of freedom. I mean, it's a rich blessing for sure, and I, I kind of don't always know how it works. I, I just want it to work. I mean, I expect it to work. But from time to time, I'm awakened to some dramatic notice of the how. The how. I mean, it is filled with big things like, like sacrifice and cost and someone taking responsibility for me. But, oh, but, but most of the time, I just sort of stumble through life expecting big things to be there. Doesn't actually matter how it works. I just, I just want it to work. But there is something very precious in the how. Something very precious. There's so much in the how. From that, that, that massive idea of freedom, today we stretch into an even broader idea of salvation. Focus on, on the who and the how it will challenge you. Oh, Sunday morning comes, you kind of walk into church and you flip the switch with your outstretched finger, hoping to bask in the illumination. We walk into worship and we really don't, we don't want to know how it works. We just want it to work. We just want it to work. But sometimes it's really good to pay attention to the how. What happens between here and, and here? There's a lot that goes on between the problem and the finished product of God's rescue. It's mechanical. It is detailed. It is costly. It is supernatural. 
focus on the who and the how, it will change you. Let's bow together as we pray. Heavenly Father, in the presence of your word, we recognize the amazing things that you have bought for us. We live in the wonder of salvation, the reality of a full forgiveness, and the victory that is ours through Jesus Christ. Forgive us, Father, when our apathetic spirits have grown dull and lifeless. We've allowed ourselves to be overcome by the efforts of the world, and we miss the substance of what you've really achieved. God, you are precious to us. Lord Jesus, you are precious to us. And in these moments of conviction, we ask that your Holy Spirit would restore and refresh and provide the healing that only you can bring. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.